people tell me that well we're biologically driven for fear the amygdala feeds fear yeah I, I certainly there's there are biological elements there but I believe we also all of us have a hunger for hope yes. you know I, I challenge people when have you run into somebody who said my desire my aspiration is to live in fear none of us want to live in fear we all want to live in hope and excitement but we've lost that because we're so consumed by the fear And welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear conversations that generate one aha moment after another for you. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress happening in the world that almost no one knows about. But we're here to let you in on all that, all these things that should be celebrated, and all the insights that could be important to our lives. We are talking to some thought leaders around the world who are tackling some of the world's most important problems, and they think the future is still bright for us all. I know, that sounds impossible given what we all see on the 24-hour news cycle on social media, but it's true. There are millions of people coming up with ingenious ways to tackle the problems in the world, and some with insights that are so relevant for our times. And we're gonna talk to one of those thought leaders today. I am so excited to share with you my friend John Hagel's insights about the working world and about how we run our lives with less fear John has written an amazing book, but first, let me just let you in on what a great life's journey John has had to bring us to this moment. He spent decades in Silicon Valley, but started two tech startups. He was a partner at McKenzie for, I think, 16 years. You can correct me on all this in a moment, John. And then he just retired from 13 years at Deloitte, where he ran their research center called the Center for the edge. Well, John's written eight books and is setting up a new center that we can all get to, to find a connection with his book and applications with his book called The Journey Beyond Fear. And I know that we all can can identify with needing a lot less of that in our lives. So welcome, John Hagel, and please fill in the gaps in that introduction I've just made for you. Wow. <laughs> Uh, how long do I have? It's a whole life's journey. Uh, you know, I started as a, a child. I grew up in a different country every year as a child. So global upbringing. But I was also a part of a dysfunctional family. My mother had huge rage issues. And uh, it really built into me at a very early point in my life, a fear, fear of anger, and fear of being punished. And and so my my life has been basically seeking ways to overcome that fear and to cultivate emotions that really helped me to achieve more impact. And it took a long time. I ended up in the in my professional life as a consultant because I had been brought up with the, the narrative, the view that my needs did not matter. It was all about the needs of others. And if I could serve the needs of others, everything would be okay. But don't forget about my needs. And so naturally, I was driven into consulting where it's all about the client's needs. And but it was interesting. This goes way back. It was over 40 years ago now. I was a, um, a consultant in Boston with a company called Boston Consulting Group. And uh, I saw an opportunity to create a new business. And I had been drawn to, to Silicon Valley for quite a while. I had no technology background. I was a liberal arts person and had, had not, never even used a computer before. But 
I had an idea for a computer company. And so I made the decision to leave my job at a well-known consulting firm, head off to a new area that I never lived in and uh, start a new company in an area that I had no background in. So I cried all night before the, the day I announced my resignation from, uh, from BCG. But I came out here and I, it's been a journey to really find what excites me. And I was drawn here because in Silicon Valley, there's a sense of opportunity. Everybody has a sense of the big opportunities in the future. And increasingly, I began to focus on an opportunity that excited me which was a concept of learning platforms. And so it's driven a lot of my work, a lot of my research and journey to be continued. As you said, I'm setting up a new center next year. And so more to come. All right. Well, I had either forgotten or missed that part in our first conversation about the way you grew up. And I'm noticing that as we go along the journey with the Goodness Exchange, we're sharing the stories of people like you People who are out there, you know, saving endangered wildlife and the rainforest and fixing climate change and all that there is to do. And there's something, the thread that runs through everyone we interview, and that's that you seem to have found your niche, like you're calling your, what you're uniquely built to contribute. And I would, I would love for you to share with us just a little bit of how circuitous your journey was to actually get here. I mean, we understand how you started as a child. And you know, my experience experience tells me, John, that that most of us start with a less than ideal childhood. And a lot of what we spend our early years doing is sort of overcoming that. And you know, I, I don't know if that's if that's a bad thing because you sound to me like like the kind of person that would agree that whatever you've gone through up to this point in creating this new center, you pretty much needed to go through that to be able to do exactly what you're about to do. No, it's been a journey. And a good part of my book is sharing the path that I I took, the journey that I took. You know, it was not until I was in my 50s before I really could articulate what the opportunity was that really excited me and that would drive me forward. It was kind of in in the background in 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 the earlier years, but it didn't really come out and I didn't focus on it until I was in my 50s. And my hope in the book is to help people find that passion, that that opportunity earlier in their lives. Don't, you don't have to wait until your 50s to, uh, to find it. So, yeah. Great. And that's exactly what we want to do. So we're so on the same page. Okay. So John and I had a pre-call where we talked about his ideas and sort of formulated a, a, a plan for what we would talk about today and share with people. And we don't have to stick with that, of course, but you shared with me your three pillars. And I would love to give people an overview of that first, and then let's see if we can get through them. Because I think it's so important to what you just said. Your hope is to, with a book, help people not have to wait till they're in their 50s to get to this place. So tell us about the three pillars in brief, and then we'll take them apart one by one. Yeah, sure. Now, so the book is really, first of all, helping people to acknowledge their fear, but then helping to find a journey that will take them beyond it. And in that context, I've identified three pillars. And at the highest level, I call them narratives, passion, and platforms. The challenge is that I have very different definitions for all three of those than most people do. So 
a part of the book is just explaining what I mean when I say narrative or passion and why I think it's so important. And it's, again, partly based on personal experience, my own journey, but a lot of it's based on research that I've been doing uh, as part of my center, Center for the Edge activities and, and other research that I've done over the years. So one of the things that I that stood out to me when we talked about the three pillars it is that the first one, narrative, is, is so, there's such an important difference between the word narrative and the word story. <laughs> and we talk a lot in the news and on social media and about when we're trying to sort of sort things out for ourselves about the stories we tell ourselves. But I love this twist on story that you've got and improving it really so much into much more of a useful way by calling it a narrative. So let's start there. Well, yeah, so I, I make a distinction. I think, as you said, most people view stories and narratives to mean the same thing. I view as very different meanings. For me, a story is self-contained. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. The end, the story's over. It's also about me, the storyteller, or it's about some other people, real or imagined, but it's not about you. You can use your imagination to figure out what you would have done, but it's not about you. In contrast, for me, a narrative is open-ended. There is no resolution yet. There is some major threat or opportunity out in the future, not clear whether it's going to be achieved or not, not yet resolved. And the resolution hinges on you. It's a call to action to say your choices, your actions are going to help determine how this narrative resolves. So it, I think, can be a powerful um, catalyst for people to really start to focus on what is their view of the future. Does this help us feel less victimized by all the chaos that's going on? <laughs> well, it can. I think the challenge is, you know, I've worked with a, a number of people around, I talk about narrative at multiple levels. There's personal narrative, what we have as individuals, corporate narratives, geographical narratives, cities, regions and then movement narratives. And I think at the personal narrative level, the challenge is very few of us have even bothered to articulate what our personal narrative is. Even though we're living to it every day of our lives, we haven't even articulated what it is. And when I work with people on the personal narrative, the first step is, what is it? What, and it starts with the question of, what is your view of the future? <clears throat> is it primarily driven by threat or by opportunity? And if it's a threat, what threat? If it's opportunity, what threat or what opportunity? And then do you have a call to action to others? Are you asking for help from others? And I think more and more people are realizing when I go through this exercise with them that their view of the future is primarily driven by threat. The future is very scary. There are bad things that are going to happen out there. And because it's threatening, I can't ask for help. I can't trust anybody. I have to rely on myself. It's all on my shoulders. So, I And that's not true. It's not all on our shoulders. No, I think that for to accomplish anything in life, I mean, more and more, we begin to realize that it's by coming together with others that we can accomplish a lot more than we could if we just sat in our, at our desk and tried to do it ourselves. So this is the gist of the goodness exchange. <laughs> Why we're talking, what the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast is about is finding our combined, how, how powerful our combined strengths are and how once you find that recipe, your weaknesses become irrelevant. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I think it's, again, it's something that very few really have come to realize. It's, you know, we live in a society where 
increasingly it's, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that. No, it's how can we come together and accomplish something much greater than we ever could just on our own. So I want you to elaborate a little bit just so that we we can start recognizing it when our minds are are doing this, because I think it's so disempowering. This, when you look at the future, are you asking ourselves, when we look at the future, are we primarily looking at threat or opportunity? I don't want to miss this point. I think when, uh, what I remember from our first conversation, I went out and I started looking at all my thoughts like that. Mm -hmm. Am I looking at threat or opportunity? So go into that just a little bit deeper so we can all start using that tomorrow or today. (laughs) No, it's complicated. And that's part part of why I want to offer some programs around it because it's challenging to people. But I think the the issue is just, again, look, forcing yourself to look ahead and say, when I think about the future and, you know, I, I think that increasingly more and more of us are viewing threat and you know the threat can vary depending on our position in life i mean one of the the areas that i talk about is in in the work environment more and more workers are fearful that they're going to lose their jobs because the robots are going to take their work the technology is going to take their work oh my god i have no work i'm going to be unemployed <laughs> that's scary older people you know, I think it's an interesting paradox. The good news for older people is you're going to live a lot longer than you thought you were going to live. The bad news, did you save for all that, uh, all those extra years of life? Oh, <laughs> I'm afraid. I'm not going to have anything to live on. So, <clears throat> you know, I think it, it varies. And, and yes, we, we can see many threats or many opportunities. But again, it's that exercise of saying, at the end of the day, what is the threat or opportunity that's really driving my choices and actions today? And is that really the best motivator for impact that's meaningful to me? And I assume the path that you recommend is to always look for the opportunities in things that you might otherwise shut down after you realize are fearful. Yeah, and it's an exercise, again, I'm a big believer in the power of emotion. So it's not just looking for opportunities. It's looking for what really excites you. When do you get super excited? When does that energy start to flow? That's the opportunity that you need to focus on, not just an opportunity because somebody said this is a big thing, going to be a great thing. No, it's are you excited about it? It could be anything from gardening to a new generation of technology to saving plants. I mean, it's it just depends on the individual as to what excites them and go for it. Yes. And head off in that direction. So how does that relate? I also want to dig a little bit deeper so people know what you mean when you say, do you have a call to action for others? Yeah. Well, again, I think it's just a question of really reflecting. And and again, I, I think we have increasingly around the world, cultures and societies where asking for help is a sign of weakness. You're a weakling. You mean you can't do it on your own? And we're in a, in a society increasingly of erosion of trust. We trust fewer and fewer people. So if we're not trusting and asking for help is a sign of weakness, we're not going to ask, reach out to people and say, I need help. You know, you have to, first of all, acknowledge that you need help and then ask for help. And I think for, for many people, that's not easy. But I think absolutely a key part of this path to achieving more impact. This is fundamental. Is that we've kind of got to get over ourselves in some in some ways, right? And and be like the first to be vulnerable if you want to think of it that way, right? Yeah, that's the key way to build trust. If you're not willing to express your vulnerability, nobody's going to trust you either. So the first step is 
saying what 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 are your needs what are the things that you need help on and that will help to build trust yeah i think it's going to build if i see it becoming easier for people i've noticed it in my in my practice people are a lot lot more open than they used to be i know that the times when i've found the courage to be the first one to be vulnerable i always get repaid in spades for that that risk so i would encourage everyone to we can remember nothing else from our conversation. <laughs> Try that, that this this opening part of this podcast. Look at the future or notice whether you're looking at the future primarily primarily as a threat and then figure out how to make a call to action to others. That's so that's so key. So before we move on to the second pillar, I you said some interesting things to me in our first conversation about how the news media sort of fans fans this flame of fear. Again, I think there are some fundamental forces that are creating the fear. So yes, there are issues like you know technology increasingly taking work that people were doing. That's scary, and so it's we're under it's understandable to be afraid. But on the other side, I believe the news media is feeding the fear. I mean, I challenge people: when was the last time you watched a news story that was a good news story? We're always just talking about the latest disaster or catastrophe somewhere in the world where terrible things happen and just focus on that and lose sight of everything else. And so I think uh, the news media feeds the fear. I, I also perhaps controversially view our political environment as feeding the fear as well. And I hold both sides equally guilty on this. It's not one side or the other that's feeding the fear. Both sides I have adopted what I would describe as threat-based narratives. The view of the future is the enemy's coming to get us. We're all going to die. We need to mobilize now and resist or we're going to die. And the enemy differs depending on which side you're on. Yes, but it's all about we're going to die. And so, uh, you know, I I challenged when was the last time we had a politician that came in and said, imagine if we could the amazing things we could accomplish if we all came together. Right. been a long time. I, I know. And I'm going to hold my breath. I think we're coming to that. I I see more and more, no matter if people are on our team or not, I see that we're all getting tired of the, the really zealous voices. And we're looking for the helpers. We're looking for the thoughtful, measured voices. You know, people tell me that, well, we're biologically driven for fear. The amygdala feeds fear. And yeah, I, I, certainly there's there are biological elements there. But I believe we also, all of us have a hunger for hope. Yes. You know, I, I challenge people. When have you run into somebody who said, my desire, my aspiration is to live in fear? None of us want to live in fear. We all want to live in hope and excitement. But we've lost that because we're so consumed by the fear. All right. But we can get out of it. And these are, there are some great practical tips that you shared with me that I, I want us to get into. I want to, before we slide there, I want you to give us one more example that kind of hit me between the eyes. Is this how it's this relationship to narrative about climate change, for instance. Oh, for instance yeah. That's such a good example of looking at things through the lens of fear or looking at things through the lens of opportunity. Yeah. So, that, so that people can really understand what they're hearing next time they can go, ah, this is just what John was talking about. Yeah. Well, I don't want to single out climate change, but I'll use it as an example. But my concern is all the major movements we have for change in the world today 
are driven by threat-based narratives. It's all about the terrible things that are going to happen. And climate change is just one example of many movements out there. But it's an interesting example because, again, the focus is on threat. It's all about the world's coming apart. We're all going to die. We need to move now and, and do something. And I keep saying, what could we accomplish if we could develop, articulate a view of the future that says, if we could address all these challenges and problems, what amazing world could we create? Something that we've never seen before where everything flourishes. What would that look like? And how could we come together and help achieve that? That's the opportunity versus, you know, we're all going to die. Yeah. And I think that that's what we've been capturing the goodness exchange with our articles about climate change and the innovators who are addressing it. My gosh, the most extraordinary ideas are out there, but they're just not rising to the top of our awareness, the way the internet works with this doom and gloom, making, you know, deciding what we get exposed to. It's just whatever rises to the top is whatever we'll click on related to doom and gloom. So I'm with you. I think that we, if we start sharing a, a world full of possibility when we see it, that's the way we're going to flip this thing into a world that we want to run towards rather than a future we want to run away from. Okay, so with that said, I want to talk about your second pillar. And this gets down to one of the very most fundamental things we're driving at with the Goodness Exchange is hastening people's ability to cultivate what they're uniquely built to contribute find their passion, their calling, their purpose, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> but you and I have both found it. All the people that I interview on the Conspiracy of Goodness have found it. And if we can help each other get there faster, these combined talents, our combined talents for a world full of people who have found what they're uniquely built to contribute can change the future. So talk to us about passion. Well, again, it's a word that I have to define because my experience is if I'm in a group and ask everybody to define passion, I get as many different definitions as the people in the room. So I'm focused on a very specific form of passion. I call it the passion of the explorer. And this emerged from research that I did when I was looking at environments where there's sustained extreme performance improvement. I said, what can we learn from those environments? And one thing that I learned was that despite the diversity of those environments, all the participants in those environments had a very specific form of passion. And the passion of the explorer, as I've come to describe it, has three elements. First is people who have this passion are committed to having increasing impact in a domain, not just being in that domain, but having more and more impact in that domain. And then the second element is questing disposition. They are excited about challenges. When they're confronted with a challenge, there's excitement. This is an opportunity to have even more impact. What would I do? What could I do? And then the third element is a connecting disposition. People with this passion, when they're confronted with those challenges, their first reaction is, who else can I reach out to to get help, to get to a better answer faster? And so they're extremely connected because they're constantly asking for help and reaching out to get more impact. But it's the impact that excites them. It's having more and more of that impact, and they're driven by it. So these are places where we can find ourselves, right? If we're along the journey, some, somewhere along the journey, we're caring about having more impact. Maybe that's why it, when people are part of the Great Resignation, it's because they, they want to know their work matters or they've got something to contribute that can have an impact greater than what they're feeling now. 
Talk to me about the impact, that kind of excitement of doing something never been done before and that connection part as it relates to maybe just, you know, just pontificate a little bit about how that might relate to people who are in the great resignation or considering a change in their lives. Yeah, well, I, I think, again, this is a situation where, you know, one of the pushbacks I get from from a lot of people when I talk about passion is they say, oh, come on, John, some of us are capable of passion. But most of us just want to be told what to do and get the security of an income, and that's that's fine. No, I believe we all have the potential and the need for passion. It's within us. It's waiting to be discovered. We need to make the effort to find it, seek it out. And I think one of the interesting things is I did research. Again, a lot of this is based on research, but when I discovered this passion of the explorer, I said, let me figure out how many people in the U.S. workforce have this kind of passion about their work. And this, the, the survey was done about three years ago. It turns out, at best, 14%, 1-4% of U.S. workers have this kind of passion about their work. 86% do not. And to your point about the great resignation, I think one of the positive impacts of the pandemic is that it's motivated a lot of people to step back and reflect on, on the work they're doing and say, is this work really exciting and meaningful to me? And discovering, no, it's not. I'm doing it just for the income. So increasingly, many people are making the decision to, to leave that work and find work that's going to be more meaningful to them and will draw out their passion. And does that mean we all are going to quit and go join an ashram? Does that mean our the businesses that we work in have to figure out new models that can help us feel like we're more, you know, we're contributing something that matters? Is this, you said a, a very interesting expression to me the other day. I've thought about it a hundred times. Yeah. You said a lot of people are actually quitting the middle manager. Were you the one who said that to me? <laughs> We may have come across it in the conversation for sure. Yeah. yeah. That really stuck with me, John, because I know a lot of founders of things have so much passion and they, they have this vision that they can just see if this thing they've created could fly. But then once you get a system underneath you to support all these big ideas, you, you get further and further away from the founder and more to middle managers who may not have the same passion or even leadership skills. Talk to me about that. No, well, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that it's sad about is, I, as I mentioned, I've been in Silicon Valley a long time. And when when successful entrepreneurs get to a certain scale and size, the investors say, we need to bring in adult supervision into this company. And what they mean is they need to bring in experienced managers from large institutions who can start to impose all the processes and disciplines and crush the passion, basically, that's within the workforce. And so I think it's a very uh, sad transition that these companies that were so had so much passion and excitement and success were are now increasingly, you know, modeling traditional large companies where you're just told what to do and get the job done. And yeah, so I think it's, um, it's unfortunate. But uh, I do believe that we are in a world, the good news, again, I, I'm, I'm fundamentally an optimist. Uh, it, again, if you look at the forces that are driving change in our economy and society, we have the ability now to start new businesses with far less money and far more quickly create value than ever before. And I think one of the things we're starting to see in the Great Resignation is that many of these people are choosing not to go work for another large company, 
They're choosing to start a business, something that they're really excited about. And they can do it because, again, it doesn't take as much money as it did in the past. And you can get a lot more impact more quickly. Why not? All right. So this leads to this third pillar that I want to spend the rest of our interview on, because it's really where the, the practical meat of what we can do to help others understand this, this new way forward. But let's take a break. And when we come back from the break, we'll start adding a lot of practical tips about how we do these new ways of living and working. Hello, I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of Ever Widening Circles and the podcast you're listening to now the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. And I have a question and an answer for you. Have you been hoping the world is actually a lot better than what you see on the news and social media? Well, it is. In fact, it's radically better. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows about yet. But on December 1st, 2021, all that changes with the launch of the Goodness Exchange a digital landscape where you will see that the world is full of goodness and progress, and we will introduce you to the people making it that way. Bottom line, someone is solving every vexing problem in the world, large and small. And the Goodness Exchange is where people are coming together to amplify a future that includes all that. No one with good intention and good ideas need feel alone again. Here's what you'll find at the Goodness Exchange. There will be articles about the most amazing things going on in the world that are going uncelebrated. There'll be interviews and events that will send your mind and heart soaring again. And a social media platform dedicated to a culture of kindness, insight, and celebration, a way of um, amplifying a brighter future for us all. And that social media platform is a place where organizations doing good in the world will not have to hold their nose anymore. It can be a trustworthy, respectable place for organizations to host their groups and gatherings and connect with each other. A network of positive networks, if you will. The Goodness Exchange will be a place to find mini courses and masterclasses for personal and professional development, and eventually there'll be a jobs board, and we have a children's website already all teed up. The thread running through it all is that goodness um, and progress is everywhere, and we will help people cultivate what they are uniquely built to contribute to this future for us all. Now, imagine a website with no ads, no games, and no agenda, just a simple and powerful vision of combining our collective strengths to create a future we can all celebrate. The Goodness Exchange will open a new era for us all as individuals, because you're going to find stuff that make your life better instantaneously, and as a collective, because we all want a better future for our children. Who knows what's possible if there was a place on the internet that brought out our best impulses and our collective genius. Join us after December 1st at the Goodness Exchange and start living with less fear, more joy as an individual and as a collective future for humanity. Thanks. Now we're back to the interview. Okay, we're back. So, so John, we've got the three pillars just to, just to review. You talk a lot about the stories we tell ourselves 
that are close-ended versus a narrative. Let's just review here so I can make something very practical out of our conversation personally and anybody who's listening. What would you recommend? I Is what you're saying is that I don't go and tell myself a story about my life, how it there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that leads to today, and I'm starting something completely fresh today. You're, it's more of a narrative where I, where I more creatively think about the things that have happened to me and that all those things shape all this landscape of opportunity in front of me. Tell me more about that so we can all understand how this can practically serve us, this story versus narrative. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate, again, in the psychology profession today, the, the, the expression personal narrative is widely used. And when a psychiatrist or psychologist says, tell me your personal narrative, what they mean is, tell me where you started, how you got to where you are today, the choices you made. It's all about the past. Yes. I'm talking about the future. I'm asking people to shift their focus away from the past to the future and to really reflect on what is their view of the future. And again, to me, the the key questions are, is it threat or opportunity? And do you have a call to action for others to help? And again, in my experience, this becomes a catalyst for people to say, oh, my God, this is not the narrative that's really going to help me to achieve the impact I need and want. And so it's a catalyst for them to start to focus on what are the exciting opportunities. And as they find opportunities that really excite them, they're going to... it again becomes a catalyst to uh, discover their passion. What's the passion of the explorer that's within them waiting to be drawn out? And so that gives them the fuel to make the journey is once they've discovered that excitement and that opportunity, now nobody's going to be able to stop them. They're going to be, and they're going to be asking for help all along the way because they want to have more and more impact. That is beautiful. Okay, so that leads me to this great concept that you have in your third pillar about learning. Give us the high points and then we can dive all over in this because this really inspired me. It's a, it is a new way of thinking. I think uh, the millenn- what I've observed in the generations is the millennials and the Gen Zers are going to be better about that this than <laughs> our generation and there's so much room for a better future in this. So Start us off on this this learning concept that you've got. Yeah, well, the foundation is the notion of platform. And the view here is that everybody talks about platforms today. We're in an economy driven by platforms. But I believe there is a type of platform that does not yet exist that is going to be absolutely critical to helping us in the journey beyond fear. And it's what I call a learning platform. But here, again, I have to be careful because... When I talk about learning, most people talk about, oh, you're talking about video courses and webinars. Yeah, that's a learning platform. I can access all these courses. No, (laughs) for me, the learning that is most important and most valuable, particularly if you have passion, is learning in the form of creating new knowledge, knowledge that never existed before. And you're not going to do that in a training room or a a classroom listening to a professor. You're going to learn through action and by coming together. And I think the question is, what if we designed platforms where the primary design goal, the primary design goal was to help people come together so that they could learn faster together and achieve more and more impact and create new knowledge in the process. That's missing and I think uh, hugely valuable and 
will will amplify the the passion that people have if they can come together and see others that share their passion and and learn from others in terms of what's really achieving impact and how can I get more impact. That's great. Well, I think also this this idea of coming together fits so well with other rising tides in society. Our focus on diversity. I mean, <laughs> how could anybody ever? I, I I always marvel that that's such a revelation for some business owners that they got to get more diversity yeah. because are you ever going to think of a new idea that is a real leap if everyone on your team has almost the exact same life experience? Almost nothing new can come of that. No. And again, I tend to be a bit controversial on this because, you know, more and more companies are embracing diversity. And what they do is they hire more diverse people, you know, different backgrounds, uh, genders, uh, ethnic, age, whatever. And then they get them all around the table. And the message to all the people around the table is follow the leader. Try to become as much as like the leader as you can. And by the way, the leader tends to be an older white guy. So get rid of that diversity. Try to become as much like that person as you possibly can. That's the key to success. And you lose the benefit of all the diversity, as you were saying. The reason to have diversity, I don't think it's just to be good, to have, you know, do the right thing. It's because it's absolutely critical to creating new knowledge, to learning faster together. If you all come from the same background, same experiences, you're never going to learn as rapidly as when you have people from very different backgrounds and experiences. Yeah, I, I don't know why that why that doesn't seem absolutely obvious, especially to captains of industry and people who've you know turned themselves inside out to create the new thing. <laughs> well, how are you going to get those ideas unless you bring new minds to get their, you know new ways of looking at the world together? Well, and and by the way, I'll just say again, I tend to be a bit controversial here. But I think very few senior leaders are really focused on new ideas. They're focused on having people follow the process manual that defines in great detail exactly what needs to be done at every point. And yes, there are training programs. It's so you can train to have other skills that you know will help you in the process. But it's not to create new knowledge. That's dangerous. That's risky. New knowledge. I mean, my God, what if it doesn't work? <laughs> no. I don't want new knowledge. I want to just do things faster and cheaper than I've done before. So anyway, sorry. No, no, I, that is the point. Your last few sentences there is the point, is if, if the goal, is, if the outcome, the goal is to just create things faster and cheaper than we've done before, than we've done before, we got <laughs> talking about hope being extinguished. <laughs> <laughs> so I love this conversation for its sense of possibility. So let's see if we can boil this down with our remaining time to what this means for the individual, for, for somebody who's listening to this podcast. These are lofty ideas and probably feel like things that you can't control. You can't control whether your middle managers are creating the Petri dish for good, new, diverse ideas to come up. But what can we control? Give us some practical tips. I love your zoom in, zoom out concept. Uh, Tell us all about this. Let's go into this. Oh boy. You know, I think it's um, it's a, an approach to strategy that I discovered by working with some of the most successful technology companies in Silicon Valley. They have an approach that I've come to call zoom out, zoom in, and it focuses on two time horizons in parallel. One time horizon, 10 to 20 years. And on that horizon, the question is, what is the future going to look like in, in terms of our market or industry? And what are the big 
really big opportunities that we could be addressing uh, that will be emerging over the next 10 to 20 years. Then on the other side, that, uh, that was the zoom out piece. The zoom in piece is six to 12 months. And on that horizon, the questions are, what are the two or three initiatives, no more, two or three that we could pursue in the next six to 12 months that would have the greatest impact in accelerating our movement towards that longer term opportunity? And there are many reasons why I think this is hugely valuable and effective, but I think part of it has to do with going back to fear and emotions. You know, if people are driven by fear, one of the best ways to overcome the fear is, first of all, to, again, identify a really inspiring big opportunity in the future. But the challenge is many people who have fear are going to dismiss that and say, well, that's a fantasy. That's never going to happen. On the other hand, if you're zooming in and through action today, showing real impact and progress towards that opportunity, now you overcome the skepticism that people are having. and. They start to get excited and say, oh, my God, you're able to do that. How can I join? Where can I make a contribution? And so I think Zoom Out, Zoom In has a very important role to play in terms of overcoming fear and building excitement in, in the workforce. I would have to say that most of the, the thought leaders who are working in some crazy, amazing place of innovation have that same sort of psychology working for them every day. The one I think about off the top of my head, if people want to go to a podcast that's pretty, pretty deep, but filled with that sort of commitment is a one with, that we did with a man named Damian Mander, who's discovered that single mothers make the best game wardens in Africa. Over and over in that interview, he's tired. He's tired. He's, he is in charge of 250 game wardens, all women in a part of Africa where uh, wildlife conservation is is like a war against organized crime. And so he's tired through this whole interview. But what he keeps saying, John, is put one foot in front of the other every day towards that goal, towards that goal. And uh, I can think of six others that do that say this exact same thing. And then you, I mean, now he's got Jane Goodall on his board and his, he's, he, now his idea is considered one of the best ideas in conservation in the last 50 years. Yeah, no, and I, again, I think that a key element here is having a sense of direction. What, what is that big opportunity? If, if you're just putting a foot in front of the other for, you know, just to stay moving, good luck. That's never going to get you anywhere. The key is having a sense of where you where do you want to go and then what are movements that can get you there faster and how can I bring others to together to help me on this on this journey and that's that's exactly his story. He had the big goal that came to him in an aha moment and then he just started putting one foot in front of the other towards that every day and wouldn't listen to the naysayers who said that goal was outrageous yeah. on you know, unattainable right from the get-go. Okay, so in this zoom in, zoom out thing concept, we can use that. I mean, you referenced an example of of a corporate world or a, or a business in the business. I think that applies to our family life too, right? Our personal lives. This zoom in, zoom out. Give us some examples of that. No, I think again, it, it's interesting that it initially came to me in the corporate world as a strategy, but over time, I've become more and more focused on people and their emotions. And I believe zoom out, zoom in can be very effective at, at the individual level. It's really, again, goes back to personal narrative. Personal narrative for me is zooming out first of all to say, 
what is that really big opportunity that excites me in the future that could excite me? And then what are the actions that I can take today that will help to move me in that direction and where I can learn as I go? I mean, it's not that I'm going to know every step along the way, but I'll learn as I go. And I'm excited enough about the opportunity that I'll do whatever it takes to get there. So I think um, at, at an individual level, we all need to zoom out and zoom in. And it's part of that, again, that personal narrative, evolving the personal narrative to make something that's really exciting and meaningful. All right. So let's circle back to there to this personal narrative. So when you're talking about a personal narrative, let's take someone like me. So I'm a dentist for 25 years. Um, I was fixing teeth with computers in 2003. So I, I was kind of at the top of my field, if you go by by using technology and all that. And yet I never, I had this nagging feeling that I wasn't actually doing what I was really built to contribute. So my personal narrative during those years was just keep going, keep doing good things in people's lives, keep the humanity in healthcare. And eventually you're going to have some moment It just stay open, keep being good to others, keep doing what you can. And then some moment will happen when you know that this is that moment of opportunity. So I was never fearful. I just kept doing it. So my personal narrative during those years sounds to me as if if I'm looking back, I was pretty open-ended. And I did do just that. My husband and I really worked hard to keep the humanity and healthcare and, and so forth. Okay. And then one day I get an email from a young man I'd known since he was a toddler from a foxhole in a really bleak place in the world. And he asked me a few questions that I couldn't answer. And his challenge to me for really pulled me to this new place where I felt like I had to start pointing to all the good things in the world that were going on celebrated. So then my personal narrative changed abruptly into this, no, the, the narrative that I've been living with ever since is that the world is way more complex and contains so much more beauty than the tiny slice that we see of reality on the news and social media. And I am determined to help that part of reality rise to the top, the part with beauty and wonder and possibility. And that's pretty open-ended. Is this the kind of, I'm just walking you through my personal adventure. Wouldn't, would ordinary people listen to this podcast, sit and reflect and see their own trajectory like that? Is that what you mean? It varies for everyone. I think in, in your case, and certainly in my case, it was a gradual evolution and discovery. Um, and you had a catalyst from this uh, person in the foxhole. I do believe that we can make a conscious effort now to evolve our narrative, not just wait for it to evolve, but to step back. And again, it's this process of articulating what is it today reflecting on it and saying, is this the narrative that's really going to help me to achieve things that are the most meaningful to me and evolve the narrative and then act and, and learn as you, as you go and evolve your narrative continually. But it's that quest for what is it that really excites, what's that opportunity that really excites me in the future? And, you know, I think, again, I've had a lot of experience with people where just that exercise of stepping back and articulating and reflecting on narrative is kind of an eye opener and it just okay. moves them to 
to shift in a fundamental way. Perfect, level. perfect. So that is what, had I had this insight 20 years ago, I would have made, I definitely would have made myself be more reflective about what really excites me. Is that the missing puzzle piece to the story I just told you about my trajectory over 25 years? I, I just wasn't pausing. Um, I was putting the one foot in front of the other, but never pausing to say what excites me. Is that the bottom line? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's really to step back and and accept or, or embrace the notion that there is something out there that could really excite you and motivate you to achieve impact that's much more meaningful. But you've got to look for it. You can't just, I mean, you can wait for it to happen and maybe someday it will come. But if if you're not looking for it, it's going to take a lot longer than if you actually search for it with intention. And that to me is the key. All right. So this is it. <laughs> this is what we've got to do. We've got to get folks asking, you know, taking the time to really fill this narrative in with really opportunity-based thinking and not fear. Because that that's part of it too, right? Is that even if you took the time to have that exercise, the way our mental chatter goes, that exercise might be filled with a bunch of stuff in our minds that would be full of fear facing or threat based that might talk us out of our best finding our best selves. No, but again, I think that's part of the reason why it's not just looking ahead and seeing an opportunity that it really excites you. But if one of the tests of whether you're really excited about it is, are you doing things today to move in that direction? And what impact are you achieving? And how could you get even more impact? And the more you take those steps, the more exciting that opportunity becomes because it's not, again, not just a fantasy. It's I'm making, I'm making a journey there and I'm bringing other people along with me. And this is really exciting. All right. So before we rev up today, that last, those last two sentences are probably the most important that just make my heart sore. Am I bringing people along with me? This is where the sweet spot is, I believe, in the future, is the sense of belonging and discovery together and creating together. Why don't you close out our conversation today with some thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, again, it's a key theme in the book, uh, The Journey Beyond Fear. I've come to believe that if you're really committed to learning in the form of creating new knowledge, no matter how smart and talented you are as an individual, you're going to learn a lot faster if you come together in a small group. And I call it an impact group, but it's anywhere between three to 15 people, no more than 15, because the key is to develop deep trust-based relationships with each other so that on the one side, you can support each other when you're running into challenges and problems. But on the other side, you're challenging each other, saying, why can't we have even more impact? What could we do to have more impact? So you're constantly challenging as well. And you can't do that if you don't have deep trust with each other. And I saw my advice to people as they start on this journey and start focusing on their, their personal narrative is to start coming together into small groups where people share that passion or excitement about that opportunity and we'll, we'll learn together as we go. And the internet makes that so much easier than it used to be. It does. I mean, but I, I, again, I tend to be a bit uh, contrarian in, in the sense that I think at the end of the day, the deepest trust-based relationships come when you're together in physical space. Yeah. If you're just on Zoom calls, yeah, maybe over time you, you'll get there. But that, the best way in my experience is coming together in physical space. And yes, you can use the internet to stay in touch in between uh, sessions or meetings, but yeah. We'll get there. <laughs> 
Oh, the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, you filled me full of hope. I thank you so much for talking to us and opening all these doors and windows about the way to think about how we go forward every day. So tell us where you want people to go, because I know people are going to want to connect with your ideas further than this conversation. Where can people connect with you and continue? Oh, well, I would welcome uh, any contact at all. I'm constantly seeking advice and feedback in terms of what people have heard and questions they have. But I have a website, johnhagel.com. I welcome people to come there. They can sign up. I send out newsletters on a regular basis. I'm active on social media, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. So you can connect with me on any of those. And just, uh, and next year I'll have my new center. So stay tuned for that. So that is where, where the magic's going to happen because we, you know, we all want to have more joy and less fear in life. And I thank you for being a contributor to that, that whole process. I'm really hopeful that we are opening a new era and that helpful voices like yours are going to start rising to the top. So that's the last message I'll leave people with is, if you've been inspired by John and, and you want more good people with new ideas to rise to the surface, then support this podcast, support the Goodness Exchange, support John at johnhagel.com. Help us help goodness rise to the top. Thank you so much, John. And don't forget to buy The Journey Beyond Fear. That's what I it's all absolutely <laughs> want to support that. We have Thank to you. get books like this to rise to the surface now. And if you find it helpful, for gosh sakes, share it with everyone, because that's how we move beyond fear. (laughs) Right? Is that we start sharing the good things we come across, we start sharing them and making those things rise to the top. Okay. Well, I hope that the things we talked about today bring you more joy and less fear in your life and all the connections to goodness and progress carry you through the rest of your week. You can find anything that John and I talked about in the show notes below. And we look forward to visiting again at another time with John and talking about this new chapter that's opened because we have so much less fear and more joy in our lives. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.